We have two readings from the scripture tonight. Um, the first from Luke 24, beginning at verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and blood as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name for, to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And then from Revelation chapter five and the first 10 verses. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaim in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. We give thanks to God for his word in scripture. I noticed um, when we began this series that some weeks on the screen or whatever, um, the title Excited About God had an exclamation mark after it, and uh, some weeks it didn't. Um, <laughs> I suspect this will be a contribution that lacks an exclamation mark, sorry. Um, <laughs> what is it about God that excites me and drives this sermon? To quote a line from a poem, I'll read the whole thing to you later. Not a God has wounds, but thou alone. As I say, perhaps not really deserving of an exclamation mark. We read two texts about the risen, exalted Jesus that both, for different reasons, emphasise the fact of the, that the scars of the crucifixion are still visible on his resurrected body. In Luke, they become part of the proof that he really is Jesus and has risen from the dead. He's not just some ghost or phantasm. In Revelation, something a bit more complicated is going on. As some of you have heard me say before, the book of Revelation that's so strange in many ways to us is actually um, part of a, a very recognisable genre of writing that at the time people knew quite well and that had very fixed conventions. And many of the most interesting bits of Revelation are when John, the author who clearly knows the conventions very well, deliberately breaks them because he's got something vital to tell us about Jesus. And he can only do it by ripping up the rules on how you're supposed to write a book like this. And this passage is, is one of those moments. Apocalyptic books were religious texts that claimed to be able to, to look behind the curtain and see how God was in fact at work in the complicated and discouraging tides of world history. Jewish people who looked around them and saw only oppression and defeat wrote about how in secret God was planning even now to reverse this in miraculous and decisive ways. God would send a Messiah, a conquering king, who would mobilize God's people and lead them in an orgy of battle and conquest so widespread and so brutal that it would make David's battles look like playground fights. One of these books ends with a picture of the conquering Jewish warriors resting after their victory, cooling their tired feet in the huge pools of the blood of their enemies that covered the battlefield. The stories they told deserved exclamation marks, almost as many as the average teenage diary. <laughs> and John knows this. He sets it up perfectly in chapter five, the vision of the throne room of heaven. First the scroll, and all his readers would have known what that scroll meant. This is God's decrees written down to be enacted as they are read. God's judgment ready to be declared on earth. This, that scroll is the end of imperial oppression. That scroll is the death sentence for every brutal Roman oppressor. That scroll is the humiliation and the deposition of the traitors who collected tax for Caesar. That scroll is the decree that will re-establish David's kingdom and David's throne in an unimaginably more glorious way, that scroll had plenty of exclamation marks. 
But then a moment of narrative tension. No one could open the scroll or even look inside it. Verse 3, John weeps and weeps because all of this promise and all of this hope and all of this vindication, yes, and all of this revenge as well, seems unattainable. But then the promised Messiah who will open the scroll is introduced by one of the elders who tells John to look. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed and can open the scroll. Messiah comes to bring God's purposes about. Messiah comes as lion, strong, aggressive, victorious. Messiah triumphs through a combination of military might and God's power on the battlefield. That's how apocalyptic books glow with all the exclamation marks. But John tears up the rules, and he does it several times in Revelation like this. He writes that he's told to look at something very specific, but what he sees is completely different to what he was told to look at. Here he's told to look at a lion who has triumphed, but he sees a lamb, the Greeks even diminutive, a, a little lambkin that has been slaughtered. And the song of worship the elders then sing to the Lamb is, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. Messiah comes to die, not to kill, according to John. God's people will be delivered by the offering of the blood of the Lamb, not by creating lakes of the blood of their enemies. And so John needs to break the rules here to tell the truth. Messiah will not raise up and equip a mighty army, but will instead confront the oppressors, naked and wounded and alone, and will allow imperial soldiers to crucify him. And that, not the other way, is how God will, be deliv will deliver his people. It's a story that needs fewer exclamation marks. But it is the story of our God, not a God has wounds, but thou alone. So John emphasises the wounds, the marks of slaughter visible still on the Lamb, at the centre of the throne of heaven. Jesus' body still bears scars in the throne room of heaven. Why does this excite me? Some of you may have read a story in, I think it was in both the Telegraph and the Mail during the week, uh, allegedly about a, a Cambridge University chaplain who had um, said something about um, Jesus being trans and both papers got out their full, isn't wokery horrible and he probably eats tofu, um, Arsenal. Um, it, the story was basically untrue was written, I was told this by a friend in Cambridge, but as it happens, one of the folks um, who was named is someone I've known since 1988. Um, and uh, I know quite well what he would and wouldn't say, and, and what they were saying wasn't him. Um, but that sort of language, identifying Jesus as a member of a marginalised and oppressed group, it, it is actually quite common in bits of academic theology at the moment. I've read things about Jesus being disabled and, and Jesus being black and so on. Uh, and the point always is to insist that in a particular situation of suffering or oppression, Jesus both knows the reality 
of the lives of those afflicted and is on their side. And that's a good point, a biblical point, even if the language sometimes used is difficult. Jesus does know and sympathise with our every weakness and affliction. He has been tempted in every way. The Hebrews tells us that. And that makes me think about healing and resurrection. Let me talk about disability briefly. Jessica. Jessica was someone Heather and I both knew at university. We've lost touch years ago now. Um, it happens that the, the day the police horses charged to break up the poll tax riots in Trafalgar Square, Jessica and I were there in Trafalgar Square. And I'd kind of like to end that story there because it establishes some political street cred. Um, in fact, we've been to see an exhibition of uh, Celtic jewellery in the National Gallery. Uh, and as we walked across the top of the square to the tube station, we kind of looked at each other and said, it's very noisy over there, I wonder what's happening. Um, but... Um, yeah, street cred. <laughs> um, going to an exhibition with Jessica was an interesting experience. She, she wasn't quite totally blind, but she was so short-sighted that she was registered blind, and she carried a white stick to alert others to the fact that she wasn't going to see them, so they better get out of her way. In a gallery, she'd kind of press her face to the glass, hoping that the exhibits would then be close enough below the glass that she could see something. Small bits of jewellery actually worked really quite well because of the sort of display cases they were in. Um, a few months before we first met, Jessica told me she'd left the church that she'd grown up in because she simply couldn't take one more attempt to pray for healing, mm -hmm. or perhaps particularly one more concerned conversation about whether she was sure she'd confessed all the sin in her life when healing didn't happen. I knew Jessica as a confident, self-assured young woman who lived an independent life, enjoyed galleries, gained a good degree in classics from Cambridge, then did a, a PG course in law to go on to work um, as a solicitor. She was cheerfully self-deprecating about her disability and without, in my experience anyway, any shred of self-pity. And maybe the prayers for healing had been answered a bit more than her previous church leaders realised. But God can open the eyes of the blind. And there was a degree of, of healing that she never experienced, at least up until the point we lost touch. What, I wonder, will Jessica's eyesight be like when she is resurrected and, of course, fully healed? Will she have 20-20 vision? Maybe. But I wonder if Jesus still bears his scars. Will there be no remaining evidence of Jessica's visual impairment when she is made as Jesus now is? It seems to me we can be confident that there will be no more disability, no more struggle, no more limitation. But if her life from birth has been defined, not completely of course, but significantly by her disability, and if her testimonies to answered prayer and her triumphs of faith relate in significant part to her visual impairment, then it's hard to know how she will be recognisable in the resurrection or how she will be able to praise God adequately unless some memory remains, perhaps unless some mark, then of course in beauty glorified. <clears throat> 
like Jesus' wounds are now, remains. Another friend, where's someone I'm still in touch with, uh, used to be based in Durham and uh, we'd travel to meet up from time to time. He's now in the States and uh, when we talk, we talk over Zoom. Um, he's a New Testament scholar, done really interesting work on the biblical basis of the doctrine of the Trinity. As of last year, he's also an ordained minister serving a local church. Um, as it happens, he's also gay. Um, and very open and honest about that fact. He's written lots about it, including a couple of excellent books. He and I collaborated on a book with a couple of others, and we have some plans to do another on thinking Christianly about human sexuality. Wes is convinced that Christian marriage is restricted to male-female couples, and so has committed his own life to celibacy. He's a few years younger than me, but I think it would be fair to say that his adult life up to this point has been defined more by his sexuality and his decision to be open about it than perhaps anything else. I respect his scholarship greatly and cite him regularly. I'm sure his students value his teaching. I'm sure his church loves his ministry and so on. But I think he would acknowledge that his own experience of discipleship, the wounds that he carries, the significant kingdom service that he has offered have each been in significant part shaped by the fact that he's gay. We were talking a few months ago about the resurrection. That was the conversation that got me thinking about the scars that Jesus still bears in heaven. Being gay is not in itself, of course, a scar, but the scars that Wes bears are most often marks of wounds that have landed because of his sexuality. Come the resurrection, Wes will be perfected, be perfectly healed, just as you and I will be. Come the resurrection, he will find himself free of disordered desire, just as you and I will. Of course, we all struggle constantly with that now. Come the resurrection, we will all know no more pain, or mourning, or crying. But if Wes is to render adequate praise to God, for the mercies he has known, for the battles he has won, for the good that he has by grace been enabled to do in this life. It seems to me that the fact of his sexuality cannot be erased. Somehow he will at least be someone who has been gay. Think of others I've known, Doreen, who gave her life for two decades and more to caring for her disabled husband as he gradually deteriorated guy I won't name while we're broadcasting, forced to flee as a refugee with his family from a nation where the authorities were not very tolerant of Christians, particularly effective evangelists. Others whose stories are not public but are shaped significantly by an experience of violence or abuse or poverty or being orphaned. Angus has been writing in the church um, newsletter about our local heroes of faith. If you look at that passage in Hebrews 11, it ends with nameless ones who suffered lions, flames, swords, torture, jeers, flogging, chains, imprisonment, destituted, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. And of course, we can all add our own names to the list. Names of people we know, but also 
our own names. My life has been pretty easily rather privileged compared to the friends I've been telling you about thus far. But we all know struggles. We all bear scars. And if for one or another of us it isn't one big fact that looms over our life as it was perhaps for Jessica or Wes or Dory, then the cumulative effect of all the little hurts, the wounds that come again and again, are part of our story that even if we wish they weren't there, they make us somehow who we are. So come the resurrection, what? Well, I'm sure that God could, God could sovereignly overrule, transform each of us so that our pasts are forgotten, but we still somehow remain who we are, bearing only the marks of our few successes, our failures, our temptations, our wounds, our scars, smoothed over and forgotten as the signs of the golfer's struggles in the bunker are smoothed over and hidden by the greenkeeper's rake, so I'm told. <laughs> I never go near the bunkers. <laughs> or the rest of the course. <laughs> I do not doubt that God could do that. But I fear if God did, it would devalue something of our experience of life on this earth. It would devalue something of Jesus' life on this earth. The struggles that have defined us, the wounds that we have sustained in God's service, should not be wiped away and forgotten, nor even should our failures to the extent that they are fully ours. Our salvation, our redemption, must encompass all of our lives, not just brief edited highlights. So it seems to me. In the middle of the nameless heroes of faith that end Hebrews 11, in verse 35, the writer says, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Of course, refusing to be released here is about refusing to deny Jesus, refusing to name other Christians, refusing to surrender copies of the scriptures doing something good, but nonetheless, the writer is linking enduring suffering, here the quite literal scars of torture, with the resurrection. God could transform us, I'm sure God could, that our pasts are forgotten and our scars are healed. But there are scars in the throne room of heaven already. Scars that witness to the suffering of the lamb who was slain. Can we dare to imagine that like our savior and king, we too will take our scars to heaven. Our own particular wounds that in beauty glorified of course, become shining testimonies to God's grace, goodness and power in our lives. A God who despised wounds might not find room for our wounds in heaven, but we look to Jesus and confess, not a God has wounds, but thou alone. I said earlier this was a line from a poem, Edward Shillito was, like so many others, utterly traumatised by the experience of trench warfare in the First World War. 
Like too few others, he survived. Like some others, he took to poetry to process his thoughts, feelings, experiences. This is his poem, Jesus of the Scars. <coughs> if we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the scars. The heavens frighten us. They are too calm. In all the universe we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars we claim thy grace. If, when the doors are shut, thou drawest near, only reveal those hands, that side of thine. We know today what wounds are. Have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Like some poets, Shiloto fully punctuated his work. Um, you will not be surprised to hear that amongst the question marks and commas and semicolons, there are no exclamation marks in this poem. <laughs> Shiloto wrote out of the desperate experiences of the trenches across Flanders Plain, of people so wounded by the horrors they had experienced, by the grief for lost friends, by trench foot and shrapnel and mustard gas too. People so wounded that they felt they had nothing left but their scars. What does the world look like from such a place? The heavens frighten us, he confesses. They are too calm. I guess you all know the old joke about, uh, you know, if you ever find the perfect church, you mustn't join it because you'd ruin it. <laughs> I wonder how many of us feel somewhere deep and secret inside, a bit like that about the coming kingdom. Can we, with our hurts and damage and failure, with our wounds and our scars, ever actually be comfortable there? Will it be a community we will want to be a part of? Even if we are let in, will we belong? Well, we began with a vision of the throne room of heaven. John was told to look at the Lion of Judah, who, like the messiahs in the other apocalypses, was strong, had triumphed, would gather an army and conquer. His followers would be unwounded, would dismiss whatever hurts they suffered as mere scratches to be forgotten as they washed their feet red. John was told to look at the Lion of Judah, but he saw a lamb, a little lamb, bearing the marks of slaughter. A little lamb, still with scars from the abattoir, who had stumbled to the throne of his cross, and from there, via death and 
even hell, to the very throne of heaven. I suppose there are people in this world who feel strong enough to not be frightened by the calmness of the heavens, who want to march in the army of lion, who find whatever wounds they carry to be of little consequence and trust that scars they bear will be erased or at least covered by cosmetic come the resurrection. I am not one such. I would not be me without my scars. I trust, I believe, I pray, I hope that my wounds like my war lords will be in beauty glorified on that day. But without my wounds, I would not be me. My scars are a part of me and whilst I believe that like every other part of me, come the resurrection they will be transformed. I also believe that they will not be obliterated. The one who alone amongst gods has wounds is able miraculously to make our wounds glorious, beautiful, visible in his everlasting kingdom, marks of his grace and forgiveness, occasions of our praise and of the praise of the angels too. If you are strong enough, then I basically have nothing to say to you tonight. Forgive me for wasting your time. If like me, like the poet, like Jesus, you know that you carry wounds and scars, then can I encourage you? The one who sits on the throne of heaven has a wound in his side. The hand that holds the scepter that symbolizes ultimate power over all this universe bears the marks of nails. When the final judge stands to pronounce judgment and mercy, he will stand on pierced feet. If the church is the body of Christ, then it must be a place where wounds, where scars are known and accepted and loved and transformed into glory. Those who are wounded and scarred are natives of the kingdom we awake. It's only the whole who will need to seek visas. None of this is to glory in our brokenness. God can make glory from our brokenness, but that is quite a different thing. Our wounds hurt. We rightly pray that God might deliver us from them. We rejoice when he does, but we know too that when he doesn't, it's because he has a greater deliverance, a more glorious transformation to come, and that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. And we know that our still scarred God is on the side of all who also bear scars. Our God never promises that the strong will stand. He does promise that he will not break a bruised reed or blow out a spluttering candle. If you believe yourself strong, well, good luck. If you know yourself wounded and flickering, I offer you God's sure promise. Pride might destroy you, but your wounds never will.
Your scars will be transformed into blazing jewels to be offered in worship to God. The more scars you have, the more excellent your offering. And of course, the heavier the load you bear as you carry that offering to the altar. The body of Christ is a wounded, scarred body. The scriptures tell us that it remains so after the resurrection, even in the throne room of heaven. If the church is the body of Christ, then there is little place here for the unwounded. Rather, we who are scarred come together to tend each other's wounds, to help each other bear our various loads until we each reach the altar and can offer our gifts to our still scarred Lord. My scars are a part of me, and while I believe that, like every other part of me, come the resurrection, they will be transformed. I also believe that they will not be obliterated. The one who alone amongst gods has wounds is able, miraculously, to make my wounds, to make our wounds, glorious, beautiful, visible adornments of his everlasting kingdom. That is a truth that excites me and maybe one that does, after all, deserve an exclamation mark. (laughs)